Hello, everyone, and a very warm welcome to the Trademark Now podcast, Talking Marks, where we discuss the wonderful and sometimes weird world of trademarks. Allow me to introduce myself. I'm Zach Cass Stevens, a trademark executive with Trademark Now. I co-present Talking Marks with my colleague, Gochen Uzer Chingalja. Hi, I'm Gokcha, Trademark Counsel at Trademark Now. You're very welcome to Talking Marks. Just to introduce myself now to you all, um, I worked as a trademark attorney for a little over 12 years and I have experience in trademark persecution and portfolio strategies. I provide trademark law expertise for AI model development at Trademark Now. I'd just like to say that no opinions that are expressed in this podcast are to be considered legal opinions, nor do they directly reflect the opinions of Trademark Now. What we hope to achieve from this podcast is a casual but informative discussion on trademarks to discuss a variety of subjects in the trademark world, covering currently trending trademark cases, historically famous cases, funny and unusual cases, and general trademark and trademark law related topics. Gochen and I are huge trademark aficionados, and we hope that you enjoy listening to our conversations. Mindful of the fact that many of us are now working remotely due to the current crisis, we hope that our podcast can also help you stay in touch with the trademark community. We are always looking for guests to come on the show, so if you have something to say, please do get in touch. We share our contact details at the end of each episode. Hi, everyone, and thanks for joining us here on Talking Marks. I'm Zach, and as always, I have with us Gochen. Say hi, Gochen. Hi. Hi, everybody. We also have a special guest with us, uh, one of our colleagues today, Judith Soto. Uh, Judith is the Director of Customer Success at Trademark Now as a former attorney with a background in corporate and IP law. She understands the needs of our clients and advocates to ensure that those needs are addressed. Say hi, Judith. Hi, everyone. Today, we're going to be discussing uh, the, uh, we're going to be discussing and unpacking the ongoing uh, Trademark Supreme Court case of USPTO versus Booking.com. Uh, it's it's a genericness dispute, and I, I think what we want to do first is really look at genericness. Um, so, Gochin, can you kind of give me an idea? What is genericness? Yeah. So, uh, the USPTO Trademark Manual of Examining Procedure explains as uh, generic terms are the terms that the relevant public understands primarily as the common or class name for the goods and services. And accordingly, the generic term is incapable of acquiring distinctiveness due to the fact that they will not understand by the consumer as a source indicator, but the name of the goods and services itself only. So one one basic way to find the genericness is to find the dictionary meaning of the wording and see whether this wording is overlapping with the covered goods and services. Uh, for for example, like the trademark wine for wine goods cannot be registered just because of this. Uh, effect. And then and it's important to note that this genericness may be questions both in the application phase or or it can cause cancellation of the trademark if that trademark somehow loses its source indicator power as a trademark. And, and then customers uh, somehow under, consumers somehow understand the wording goes of the name as the goods and services. So it's not only important to choose a strong trademark in that sense, uh, and, and also like bearing in mind that the strong trademark is something uh, that marketing teams and legal teams understand p- 
purely differently, but, but also using the term as a trademark, like preventing the genericness and monitoring the industry in that sense and taking on the genericness strategies are also so important. Today, as you mentioned, we will not discuss a cancellation case, but, but there are uh, some other cases where a trademark is claimed uh, that is actually turned to generic. We will cover those examples also in upcoming episodes. But, but to sum up, generic terms cannot be protected as trademarks, even with extensive uses. And, and if they turn to generic, then it can be cancelled anytime. Okay, yeah, it's um, it, it's interesting because generic is one of these things that you know to, to someone who knows nothing about trademarks, uh, you know, even if it's somebody who doesn't even know the difference between copyrights, trademarks, patents, etc., they tend to think, okay, well, a trademark, I I just want to go and file, and if there's nothing similar to it or nothing exactly like it, then I'm fine. That you know, they don't they don't actually think about that. For instance, I had a friend who created a speaker system that was a very large dome that had speakers in different areas all around the dome and he wanted to call it sound dome uh, he went to his attorney his attorney said no i think it's way too descriptive mm-hmm. um you know and, and, and he had no idea about this he was like you know he was just thinking okay well if there's not another sound dome in ireland then i should be able to file it but he was told it was too descriptive um is there a possibility to draw a line between genericness and merely descriptiveness yeah, so this is not that much easier to explain in practice, but, but in theory, again, according to USPTO, a mark is considered, considered as merely descriptive if it describes an ingredient, quality, characteristics, function, feature, purpose, or, or the use of the specific goods and services. So, like, merely descriptive describes the uh, the goods and services in a sense that for, for those those. Uh, purpose use or other stuff like again like genericness the determination of whether a mark is merely descriptive must be made in relation to the goods and services covered in that trademark but the utmost important between two is that descriptive names can become a protected trademark by earning a secondary meaning however it has not only in the US but in also most of the countries I know sometimes like it's not easier to draw the line and then and, and, uh, generic uh, words cannot, cannot enjoy any kind of trademark protection. And uh, for, for descriptiveness, USPTO also says that the great variation in facts from case to case prevents the formulation of specific rules for specific facts, facts of situations. So for, for merely descriptive uh, facts, they, they try to understand the secondary meanings case by case evaluation. Uh, and, and they do have a guideline on consideration relevant to determination of this descriptiveness or genericness. But then they uh, there they try to define each different scenario, like, for example, stating that third party registrations are not conclusive on question of descriptiveness or or saying that when two descriptive terms are combined, the, the determination of whether the composite mark also has a descriptive significant turns open the question of whether the combination of term evokes a new and unique commercial impression. So then all those are needed to be evaluated by case uh, cases on merits. There, regarding our, our case, USPT also explained uh, the domain names. And then uh, accordingly, the top-level internet domain names, generally, they say, serve no source indication function. So 
last but not the least, these generic and merely descriptive trademarks are the last scales, like last stages of trademarks. But then at the top, there are fanciful trademarks that, that lawyer, lawyers love most because like, uh, those ones are cover though those ones covers made up words and you cannot find them in the dictionary so they are very powerful in legal sense after that uh, comes arbitrary and suggestive trademarks and arbitrary marks are uh, compromised words that actually in use but not cover its goods and uh, services it do not suggest or describe any significant uh, characteristics of that goods and services and and there are also suggestive trademarks like uh, when applied to the goods and services at issue, you can guess what the product is, but still it needs uh, like a little bit imagination. Like for example, dry baby, guess what? It's for mm. diapers. Uh, diapers, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah um, this, uh, the case is very compelling, the booking.com. Like I said, we're gonna be discussing the USPTO versus the booking.com Supreme Court case. One thing that I find really interesting is that my friends who know nothing about trademark law are talking about it, which is uh, strange. You know yourself that the trademark world, of course, very small world, um, but uh, and, and this is obviously a very hot topic for for uh, uh, for the trademark law world. I think Inta is actually doing a podcast on this as well. Um, but also, there's some really unique things given the current climate, the COVID nineteen situation that we're in. This has had to force the Supreme Court to uh, take some actions like we're taking right now on this podcast uh, and, and do teleconference, which uh, obviously it's the first time um, that this a Supreme Court case would be heard via teleconference. And by the way, you can, for our listeners, you can actually go to the C-SPAN website and uh, view, well, view uh, in quotes, uh, the the entire case um, and the, the, the back and forth. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's like I said, it's a very compelling case. Um, Judith, do you want to kind of elaborate uh, on on the USPTO versus Booking.com? Yeah. So the teleconference aspect of this is so cool. I think because this was the first time ever that the Supreme Court heard our argument remotely um, while streaming it live online. So normally the Supreme Court doesn't even allow cameras in the room, which is pretty interesting. So to allow this live streaming is pretty revolutionary. There is one pretty big difference, and that's that the teleconference arguments don't follow the normal spontaneous questioning. So where judges are talking over each other, they interrupt each other, they're otherwise engaging in this sort of rapid fire interrogation. Here for the teleconference, um, each justice was asking questions in order of seniority. So they were taking turns do you know if they were on any kind of a timer? Because I noticed when I was listening to it that they would just, especially when counsel was speaking, uh, like the USPTO counsel, when when she was speaking, they would just just cut her off, just boom, and then just say, okay, justice, so-and-so, your turn. Yeah, so um, it, it's, it's interesting because I read an article where they said that they noticed that Chief Justice Roberts was acting as sort of like a panel moderator, and that kind of gives him a little bit more power as Chief Justice, right? Because then yeah. he was able to cut people off when he thought that they were done and call on the next justice when he thought that the justice was done with their questions. So it's, it, it, it does add an interesting aspect to the whole process. It makes sense because mm-hmm. the whole thing did uh, really flow. 
Yeah. And are there other courts or USPTO use the same method like teleconference, Judith? Yeah. So the CARES Act that was recently implemented in response to COVID-19 actually allowed district judges, of course, with the consent of the defendant, to temporarily use video or telephone conferencing. So it is allowed for certain, procedure, for, for certain proceedings and all federal courts are allowed to use that method. Yeah. So, and, and before coming to that, is there any recent trademark related decisions from Supreme Court that you found really interesting? Yeah. So as Zach mentioned, there's not that many cases that really garner national attention like this one. You know, it doesn't happen too often. The last uh, most recent case that was a really big deal here in the U.S. Um, was decided June 2017, so you know, quite a few years ago, and that was the Metalvi Tam case. Um, and this was a case about a rock band who wanted to name themselves the Slants, mm-hmm. and the USPTO had actually denied their registration, saying that it was a disparaging mark, um, and that that disparaging mark was unconstitutional. I'm sorry, that disparaging mark could not be registered under the Lanham Act. And so that court, that case went to court and there the court found that saying that it was disparaging, having to do that analysis of whether a word is disparaging or not was actually unconstitutional. Um, and that violated the, the slant's first amendment. So it is more related to constitutional uh, rights, like uh, booking common, that sounds a little bit different because it's Purely, I think, commercial aspect, right? Yeah, I don't think that they're deciding here on a constitutional mm-hmm. level. So yeah, there is that difference. Are there are there any other particular cases, Judith? There's one more interesting one. It's just a little funny. Two guys started a clothing line using F-U-C-T, which as we can all imagine, really sounds like <laughs> fucked. Can I say yeah. that? Yeah. <laughs> um, so they actually say that the F-U-C-T stood as friends you can't trust. Um, yeah. But you know they were being humorous. They knew the phonetic similarity there. They they didn't they didn't try and deny that. But again, the the PTO denied their registration, saying that it was scandalous because of how close it was phonetically, and and so then that course that case went to the Supreme Court, where again this is a constitutional law case. The Supreme Court is saying just like the Maytal case that making that assessment on whether the word is scandalous or not, does infringe on the Fourth Amendment. Yeah. Yeah, it's, uh, th- those those phonetics are interesting. Um, it, even if you look at the likes of transliterations and things like that, where something is pronounced differently, uh, you know, in a different, different region, different language. It's one thing uh, that our clients at Trademark Now are always coming to us because, because we have a computational linguistics element of the algorithm. We look at over like 200 different languages, but then we also look at, you know, uh, any vulgar word meanings or any, any possible transliterations, like going back to, to a New Balance case uh, in China where they, uh, they got rejected because of the existence of Nubao. And while Nubao had nothing to do with the word new or the word balance, uh, it was still that transliteration that, that kept them out. So the phonetics are, are very, very interesting. Um, just getting back to, to booking.com, uh, would you mind, Judith, just summarizing what the dispute is? Yeah, so let's start with some background history, right? Booking.com filed four applications for U.S. trademark registration. They filed in classes 39 and 43. And for each of those applications, they were denied registration. The USPTO concluded that booking.com is generic, as explained by Gochen earlier, 
for the services that they had applied for. And so Booking.com challenged that decision. They filed a civil action in the US District Court of Virginia. And there the court found that adding.com transforms the mark and actually makes the mark merely descriptive and not generic. So it took it out of the generic bucket. Sorry, Judith. We, we've talked about before too, where uh, we talked about this a little bit last week to where in this case, it's kind of like there's two levels and they've got to get through one level to get to the next level. The generic levels first, the acquired distinctiveness is first. Wait, explain, explain that a little bit. So there's two different analysis, right? So it depends on which bucket you fall into with the mark, right? So if you fall into the generic anal- uh, bucket, then there's one analysis that the court goes through. And if you fall into the, uh, the merely descriptive section, then the court can undergo a separate analysis. And so it was really important in this case to decide, okay, where is this falling? Mm-hmm. So the court fell on booking.com side or the district court, okay? And they, they agreed that um, it did change it from being generic and they allowed booking.com to show this acquired distinctiveness, which happens after you fall out of the generic bucket. And we'll talk about the survey a little bit later. It was a really interesting survey Um, analysis that booking.com goes through. So in the end, the district court concluded that a mark composed of a generic word and a domain can be descriptive. Okay, so that's kind of the main argument that we're looking at here. And so the question presented to the Supreme Court, right, because now the USPTO is challenging that district court decision. Um, And so the question presented to the Supreme Court was whether the addition of that .com in this case Um, to an otherwise generic term can create a protectable trademark. So interestingly enough, Booking.com isn't contesting that booking the word is a generic word, right? That's not really what's at issue here. What they're saying is that adding the .com changes it from being generic. And the courts haven't really addressed top-level domains. You know, this issue has not come up yet. The internet is relatively new in terms of case law history. Um, and as it hasn't been something that's been decided. So the government, the USPTO, is, is basing part of their argument on a case from 1888, right, known as the Goodyear Rubber Company case. And they're saying that that case already decided this issue of two generic terms coming together, right? But in that case, they were talking about the word company, right? And here we're talking about top-level domains. So there is this distinction, right? Um, it's a big stretch, isn't it? Yeah, you know, I, I think it's it's an interesting argument that the government is making, you know, because they're saying that this company is the same as a domain and, and everybody can use it. But Booking also has um, a good argument, you know, where they say that um, the dot-com does transform the term in the eyes of the consumers. And... We'll talk about this a little later, but they do touch on the fact that you can only have one domain, right? So there can only be one booking.com. There can be many .coms, right? But there can be only one combination of that booking.com. Whereas, you know, in company, it might be a little different, right? So, yeah, I think the court is like both right now questioning the uh, risk of monopolization, like of... Uh, if you uh, if the company Booking.com have the trademark Booking.com, then they can prevent any kind of 
booking similar .com trademarks. And also the need of registration, they try to understand the need of registration as because like there is also like unfair competition uh, regulations and also also because like there is only one uh, .booking.com website, there is actually a not that much infringement uh, opportunity like in a traditional way because there is only one web page and that web page belongs to the company. Uh, yeah, I yeah, that that's was, that was an interesting yeah. argument that the Supreme Court is is kind of undergoing. It's like, do they even need trademark law? Yeah, right? exactly. It's like a funny thing to even consider yeah. when we're talking about a USPTO case. It's like, do they even need trademark law to protect them in this instance? Yeah, and then like moreover, from the oral arguments, I understand that the court tried to understand the view of USPTO. Uh, considering the registration of, like, for example, the phone numbers, 118 plumbing, for example, for plumbing services, because, like, I, I feel and also, like, the court also think that, like, then what is the difference between these phone numbers vices .com? Because they are more similar than, than comparing the company wording, because, like, also phone numbers are also unique, and they are providing such registration to phone numbers. Yeah, so actually, um, INTA, there's, there's been a, a lot of amicus briefs filed on this case, which is also a whole, probably a whole separate topic for a podcast. Um, yeah. But INTA filed uh, amicus brief actually right on point with this. Um, and they, again, make an, a really good argument here that telephone numbers, like you're saying, right, and geographic locations have already been found, right, to be merely descriptive. Um, and so that's kind of settled. All the courts agree with that particular fact. And so INSA is drawing a line and they're saying telephone numbers in geographic locations are just like domains. You know, it's that they're the same. And yeah. their argument is that domain names are registered to a single owner and they represent a unique location, right? Just like a telephone number is registered to a single owner and a geographic location obviously represents a certain area. So they, they feel like they should be treated the same and, and have often been held to be descriptive. Yeah. Yeah. And I also read this amicus briefs and uh, I just would like to add this amicus brief filed by the academia, like the council for amicus brief was Harvard University, and it was signed by Boston University, Notre Dame Law School, Texas A&M, American University, UNC, DePaul College, like, and then which uh, support neither of parties, by the way, <laughs> in this makeup <laughs> brief, yeah. And then, uh, like, they say, they they are taking the attention to the fact that the dot-coms are unusual and, and having, like, creating limited scenarios. Because, like, as a result of this exclu exclusivity of domain name systems, even in the absence of trademark protection, there is a limited opportunity for traditional counterfeiting. And they also clearly state that whatever court's conclusion res with respect to booking.com, the court should be very clear that the uniqueness of a top-level domain name cannot in itself generate a protectable secondary meaning. They have... They have that concern, like they mean whatever the rule court adopts, it, it should not rely on the de facto uh, secondary meaning for domain names. Yeah, just mm. because you have a domain doesn't yes, mean exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you, so you think you want to be a trademark attorney? 
You're going to you're going to go in with a URL case and get compared to an 1890s Goodyear case. Uh back of of course when they had dial up. It was it was, it was very slow back then. Um so in in you know in regards to the USPTO, do, do they have similar decisions from other jurisdictions coaching? Yeah, um but- like before other jurisdictions, so for USPTO, both booking com and also USPTO have appendix in their petitions, and then uh, they just list registrations or rejection decisions, uh, similar decisions in line with their claims. And then uh, when I when I uh, just read them, I, I generally see that for retail services, USPTO accept the subject matter of the retail services wording as a trademark. So for example, cooking.com, retail services featuring food preparation, has been registered or or batteries yeah batteries.com retail and uh, wholesale services for batteries or beauty.com for cosmetic retail services for cosmetics and the same same goes to online directory services such as buses.com online directory listing bus companies and and other issue that i have realized that if if it's a noun like dentist.com or or uh flights.com as, as I understand, the USPTO have some sort of assumption that, that uh, we are not still 100% sure what the service is, whether it is a retail services of dentist equipments or, or dental services, so they are generally accepted. But then I found, for example, Dating.com, which is accepted for dating services, and I feel that that is uh, not much different from Booking.com. So, which gives me an impression that the evaluation is made on case merits, maybe. I, yeah. I really, yeah. Thank and God then, it's not subjective. Uh, <laughs> yeah, and then, like, what I found, again, in, in, very interesting, and I read uh, in one of the petitions for this, actually, that USPTO never talk about this Goodyear decision in the guideline or refer it. Uh, which is actually uh, USPTO's main point in the, in the dispute. And, and uh, for, for other jurisdictions, there is this uh, WIPA trademark, uh, Booking.com. And then uh, I have checked that uh, trademark application and they got actually rejection uh, decisions from some of the uh, jurisdictions like Turkey, Singapore, Norway, uh, Republic of Korea, Japan, Israel, uh, Australia, and based on absolute grounds of refusal for related services with regard to lack of distinctiveness. For example, I've checked the decision of Israel and they say uh, booking refers to the act of agreement to buy a travel ticket and com refers to a domain type. Uh, as such, the mark booking com bears direct reference to the character quality of the designated services. Or, or in EU, uh, in Australia, uh, they say uh, trademark is not capable of distinguishing to specified services. So other traders should be able to use booking.com, they said. Among some of those countries, they turned to rejection decision, like, for example, that's the case for Turkey, Singapore or, or Japan. Uh, and and uh, I've checked booking.com. They do have also trademark registrations in Europe and they are filing oppositions where they found necessary. For example, right now they have one opposition on the grounds of like of confusion and, and uh, reputation claims uh, against booking Europe, uh, which is still pending. Mm. So just to, to uh, make it even more confusing, uh, taking, a, taking a kind of deeper look into... Uh, booking.com portfolio. 
Uh, I use I use Trademark Now's Portfolio Analyzer, which is kind of a cool tool. Um, you can just type in a company and get a really, really nice overview and a profile. Um, and just looking at how important the class is in which we're filing to give you, like Booking.com, their first filing was back in 2000 for bookings, plural, bookings.com. Um, but it's in class 35. Uh, so I think, like, Judy, what do you think? I mean, can you elaborate too on on the just the difference there of why, okay, they can get bookings.com in class 35, uh, but now 20 years later, trying to get the actual booking.com in 43 is a problem. Yeah, going back to kind of what Gochen touched on, this is, um, the USPTO is making this determination. They're individual attorneys who review these applications, all right? Mm-hmm. And so each individual attorney can come at this with a different perspective and sort of read the guidelines slightly differently. And that slight difference can lead to a denial or an acceptance of a, of a registration, right? So it's interesting the, the analysis that goes on. And so what you're talking about is a class distinction. Um, they're drawing the distinction between the goods and services that are connected to the booking.com uh, in in any way, uh, I feel the uh, reply should be that uh, it all depends the uh, definition of the goods and services because uh, you can even cannot have a uh, registration for thirty five if it is directly related with booking services. Yeah, that's why I was yeah I was trying to yeah. figure out thirty five. Yeah. Okay. Mm. Yeah, something else that's kind of interesting is uh, just just again using one of the trademark now tools, Eximatch. I looked at anything, any mark text that actually ends with Booking.com, and obviously a large majority of these belong to Booking.com, but there are uh, a lot of different examples. There's number one, there's for Booking.com trademarks, anything ending in Booking.com, there's 231 trademarks out there uh, on a global level. Um, In the U.S., uh, there's current. In the U.S., there's currently four, and one of them is ebooking.com in class 43. So, I, you know, it's, again, going back to how subjective it is, how does ebooking.com, uh, which is not owned, by the way, by booking.com, how does ebooking.com in class 43 get accepted? Yeah, I think it really depends here on the goods and services, right? And so going back to the subjectivity um, of the analysis here, it depends on what ebooking.com actually is doing. I mean, I'm not entirely familiar with ebooking.com, but they might not be doing direct, you know, bookings. Yeah. So the the owner is uh, a company called Get It Now. Uh, they are a they're they're travel agency services making reservations and bookings for temporary accommodations by means of the internet. That's the actual description. Yeah, that sounds pretty close to me. I mean. Yeah. That sounds like, and, you know, going back to the argument about whether they need trademark law or not, um, I wonder what the argument is there to be made in terms of the comparison. Because for me, ebooking.com and booking.com are really similar. Yeah, um, and and I'm not sure I would have even known the difference. Absolutely. Yeah. And and here's another one too, just when we're talking about you know, descriptive, cruisebooking.com. Cruise is in a, taking a cruise. Uh, cruisebooking.com, uh, the, in class 39 for these descriptions provide a website for the arrangement and booking of cruises wow i don't think you can get more descriptive than that actually what do you think Ochen? yeah i agree 
there just to take another attention to another technical point that USPTO also use this disclaimer procedure. So uh, according to this procedure, uh, a disclaimer is a statement that you include in your application to indicate that you you uh, you don't uh, claim exclusive rights to an non-registrable portion of your mark, and, and and it can be either something merely descriptive or generic, like in general something that that is unregisterable. And then in those examples, the ebooking.com and then the cruisebooking.com was disclaimed, as far as I remember. I just wanted to point some of those out because it just it shows how complicated this case really is, and again how subjective it is. Um, so, uh, Judith, uh, do they are Booking.com going to rely on any kind of reputation? Yeah. So this this we we touched on this a little earlier in terms of the survey evidence, and so once they left that generic bucket, right, and they fall into the merely descriptive, there's a second part to merely descriptive. So if you're merely descriptive, you're out, but if you can show primary significance, then you can be allowed trademark protection. So there's that second level of analysis there. And so to prove primary significance, there has been this test developed, which I'm just learning about called the Teflon survey. Um, and apparently this is one of the most widely used survey formats for measuring this particular instance of consumer opinion in a genericness challenge. Um, so something that's been done before, they, there's a method to their madness. And is that um, is that Teflon because Teflon is very close to being generic? Absolutely. It mm-hmm. actually comes from the Teflon argument here on genericness. The possibility um, of, of suffering, uh, what do they call it? Gen- uh, genericide. Genericide, yeah. Yep. Yeah, so um, I'm going to run through the sort of survey method. I think it's a little interesting. The respondents are provided first. They're given a primer. So they're educated a little bit on the distinction between generic or common names and trademark or brand names. And then they're presented with a series of names, um, which they're asked to then identify, is this a common name or is this a brand name? So common meaning generic name for just the product, um, or does this represent a company? So for example, Kellogg and cereal, right? Is Kellogg a brand name or a common name? Is cereal brand name or a common name? That's the first layer of that. And so it's funny, they weed out the people who don't know the answer to that. So if you answered that incorrectly, that um, cereal is a generic common name, if you said that wrong, then you get kicked out of the survey and they only continued with the people who answered that correctly. Um, And then they're given a series of other examples, like a bunch of different brand names and common names. Um, And then it's an ABC choice. So A, this is a brand name. B, this is a common name. Or C, I don't know. Um, And amongst those choices, Booking.com is there. So obviously, they're not going to point it out exactly what they're looking for. But Booking.com is a choice in all of those surveys. Mm -hmm. And they surveyed about 400 people online. And they came out with 74.8% of people were able to identify booking.com as a brand name. So not as a generic name. They were able to recognize this actually belongs to a company. And, you know, 74.8% is pretty high for reference. The actual Teflon case held that 68% was good enough in that instance to rebut a claim of genericness. So here we have 74.8%. And so the court um, took that as being enough to show primary significance. Yeah, 
Yeah, but regarding the survey evidence, I think the court also questioning the fact that like this 74% of consumer recognized that booking.com, uh, but then 33% think that anything.com is a is a real store. <laughs> so so that makes a little bit. <laughs> yeah, that messes up the survey results just a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> it's a little vague. Yeah, a little vague. Yeah. And. And sorry, Gochen, did you, did you want to continue on about... Um... Um, like, uh, also, uh, at the beginning, I said that this genericness might happen during the lifetime of the trademark. And then regarding this issue, in one of the Amikov briefs, I think it was in uh, AIPLA, uh, explained the uh, Singer uh, sewing machine case. So uh, Singer started making sewing machines in the mid-19th century, and then it became generic as, as an indication of a distinctive style style of sewing machines and and then in the 20th century uh, again used as an indication source so enjoy uh, trademark protection so it has been held that singer uh, mark had been recaptured so it is really interesting uh, this this genericness issue is a live issue uh, depending on consumers perception yeah um, I, I think to take from this case that one of the most interesting things is what Judith talked about before is the, the it's these two levels um you know of both the um the two the, the level of genericness uh but also uh looking to see if they have that acquired distinction um also it's it's every trademark case can be so subjective especially when you start entering into the whole uh genericness side of things and then you throw the fact that it's a url on top of it all and that even makes it more subjective and more confusing. Um, I don't know. Your, your last thoughts there, Judith? Yeah. So, I, I mean, I agree with you. I think it's it's a subjective. And as we just saw, the USPTO can decide this on any number of, in any number of different ways, right? I actually posed this question internally to our company uh, to get to see what everyone's opinion was. And 57% of people felt that adding the .com wasn't enough to get into the descriptiveness bucket. Um, and that it would still maintain its genericness and not be afforded protection, while 42% thought that um, they could get into merely descriptive and they would be allowed uh, protection based on um, the primary significance. But I think it really can go either way. And it's such a big decision on all domains that I think the court here is really hesitant. And they, and they expressed it in the oral arguments. They were really hesitant to create this bright line rule that said that all domains yes, could exactly. be merely descriptive. They don't want to put all domains in this bucket, right? Mm -hmm. They want to allow for the possibility that you can get knocked out at genericness. I, th this is just uh, kind of a layman view as well, listening to this case and listening to the Supreme Court judges. It really goes to show you, you need a trademark expert. You need, you really need a trademark expert because listening to these high, you know, the, the Supreme Court judges, they're the dudes and dudettes of law. And uh, they kind of sound at times like they don't know what they're talking about, if I can be so bold. But uh, it goes to show you that it is something very, very specific. Yeah, the law is a funny thing. I mean, it really depends what time you're in, what case you're talking about, which attorney you're speaking to. I mean, there's so much that can be read into um, these laws that it does make it uh, really subjective. I would push again to go to the C-SPAN website and listen to it because it is it is interesting and, and uh, the, the, the Supreme Court does do a great 
job of playing advocate in devil's advocate to, to both sides. You know, when the USPTO is talking, they're really grilling her. And uh, when the booking.com council is talking, they're really grilling her. And it's, uh, it's interesting. Yeah. I'm not sure if I could handle being one of those attorneys arguing there, right? Yeah. You, get, you get attacked by the judges. And again, we talked about this. I think you may, you know, get a little less pressure over the phone. Right. Mm. Because you're not in this big room. You're not looking at the judges and they when they can interrupt each other and talk over you and, you know, kind of create this chaos. I feel like it it kind of bounces you off your game a little bit. Mm. So it's interesting that, you know, maybe over teleconference, even though they were interrupting you, you're sort of like home and you can maybe gather yourself a little bit. Yeah, you can have your notes and still be in your PJs. It's great. (laughs) So from a consumer point of view, like as a consumer, I I personally do not understand the whole booking.com wording as a generic term, but rather understand the website, which is owned by the company. So, um, yeah, so that's really it, guys. Any any last thoughts there before we end? No, I think we touched on a lot of the important topics for this case. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Okay, great. Well, look, uh, for our listeners, uh, we know uh, uh, it's not the, the best climate that we're in currently. We really appreciate you taking the time to listen to us while you're working from home. Um, we will be, again, just just to, uh, as I said, the last podcast, we will be releasing these the first Thursday of every month. Um, please subscribe. We are now on Spotify as well as iTunes. Uh, and again, it's Talking Marks. And uh, that's really it. So thanks very much, guys. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening today. If you would like to know more about our AI platform search and watch tools built by trademark experts for trademark experts, please check out trademarknow.com. We are always looking for guest contributors to our show too. If you'd like to suggest a trademark topic and take part in our discussions, please share your IP ideas with us by email to podcast at trademarknow.com. And if you like what you've heard, please share the news with your fellow trademark pros with the hashtag, hashtag TalkinMarks. That's Talkin, T-A-L-K-I-N, Marks, M-A-R-K-S. Hashtag TalkinMarks. Take care until the next time. 